Alright friends, welcome to RUF. We are uh, working our way this semester through the Gospel of John, and tonight we are in John 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 15. We're actually going to go up a little bit to the end of chapter 2, because um, it connects to our passage tonight. So we're technically doing 2.23, John chapter 2, verse 23, down to John 3, verse 15. It's in your handout. I'm going to read it for us. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus and his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let me pray for us, and I want to spend some time in this text tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it and given it to us, that we might know you, what you're like. And Lord Jesus, we confess to you that our our greatest need tonight, whether we know it or not, is to know you to know what you were like in your um, holiness and majesty and righteousness and power, but also to know you and your grace and your kindness and your meekness and your tenderness toward us. Lord, we come in here with um, lots of saviors that we've been looking to, to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves right with you, to make life feel okay, and we confess that. And Lord, we ask that you through your word tonight, would invite us to repent and believe the gospel. That you are the only Savior who can save us from our sins. That you are the only one who loves us truly. That you are the only one who in that love has given yourself for us. And Lord, would you help us with our weak and fickle hearts to rest in the gospel tonight. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. John 3 is fascinating. As we're making our way through John... There are a lot of firsts in John. So we've, we've looked at the first witness, which was John the Baptist and what he had to say about Jesus. Uh, there was the first sign when we looked at the wedding of Cana. 
There's the first confrontation that Jesus has with the religious establishment of the day, which we looked at when he cleaned the temple and turned over the tables. And now we have the first of two conversations that Jesus has that that John records for us because they're saying something important about us and they're saying something really important about Jesus. The first one is tonight with Nicodemus. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at John 4 and his conversation with the Samaritan woman by the well. Now, what's fascinating about this is the contrast that John intends for us to pick up on. Jesus tonight, what we're going to look at is he's having this conversation with a good guy, like a guy who is super well respected in his community, a guy from whom all appearances he has his life together. He seems to be really serious about God and to love God. And Jesus says some hard uh, things to him that we need to hear. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at a conversation with a very broken and sinful, a bad woman by the well whose life is kind of a mess and who is sitting there by herself. And we're going to look at how Jesus meets her in her brokenness. But tonight it's Nicodemus. And to kind of get at this, the way I want to play on these themes is there's a quote by Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors. And here's how he says it. This is what we're going to be doing the next, our next two times together. He says, our worst days, here's what I think the message of John 3 and John 4, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, he put, Bridges puts it like this, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, which is what we're going to look at with the Samaritan woman in two weeks. And your best days, what we're looking at tonight, your best days, you at your best, are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So I just want to do two things tonight. I just want to talk about grace. And the first thing we're going to see in this conversation is our need for grace. And the second thing we're going to see in this conversation is the mystery of grace. And that's what I want to do in our time together tonight. So first, think with me for a little bit about our need for grace. There are really uh, two important things that we have to see about this conversation. And the first is this. We have to see what, who Jesus is saying these things to. Or I guess whom, if you're an English major. Jesus is saying these things to. What was this man like? And what I want you to see is that Nicodemus was a good man. In other words, he's not some drug dealer off the streets. He's not a metoer. Uh, he's not a wolf of Wall Street. Uh, he's not living his life in five points. He's, look at the text, he is a man of the Pharisees, which meant he's a religious leader who is serious about God. He's a ruler of the Jews, verse 2, which means he was accomplished and respected enough to sit on the Sanhedrin, this council of really, really respected Jewish leaders. Who were also, he's also wealthy and prominent in his community. Um, and then he's also, verse 10, Jesus says, the teacher of Israel, which means he's both an expert in his field and also an incredible theologian in his community and in his, um, in his field. And Jesus says to this res- accomplished, respected, serious, influential, powerful, and theological man, you must be born again. He's saying, Nicodemus, you've gotten this whole thing wrong. I was thinking about, I watched, I don't know if you got to watch the end of the, the Patriots Chiefs game Sunday night. And just watching Brady's in my fantasy team, and every year I get nervous. I've had Brady two years in a row, and I'm like, is, is this the year he's going to like kind of fold? And then, of course, he like comes on as the season goes on. But this feels like if I were to go up to Tom Brady and be like, hey, man, got a few QB tips for you. Just need you to sit down with me for a second. Let me just tell you um, how you could do some, do some things a little better, right? I mean, that's what this conversation feels like. Like reading this, we, we should be thinking, who does Jesus think he is? And who does Jesus think Nicodemus is? In this conversation, just to kind of appreciate the context, would have been a huge, huge blow to Nicodemus's pride. 
the key to understand, I think, what Jesus is getting at is why I read in chapter 2, is when Jesus says, when John says that Jesus, his thoughts, when he said he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, and then John picks that right up. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In other words, what you have to see is that Jesus knew what was going on. Whatever Nicodemus' life looked like, Jesus knew the dynamics of his heart. He knew what it was that was driving this good life that Nicodemus seemed to be living. And this is the other thing we have to see. It's not just who this man was, but we have to see what Jesus was saying. And he's saying, if we can just summarize it, he's saying, Nicodemus, you've done some really important and beautiful things, but I know what's in your heart. In other words, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, are you really the, the, the teacher of Israel, but you don't understand the most fundamental truth about the grace of God? Nicodemus, have you not read Isaiah 64, where God's word says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And Jesus is saying, Have you not read that? Surely you've read that. Surely you've taught that passage. But do you understand it? Do you understand that that's who God says you are, that you're in need of grace? I think we typically think about grace as a clean slate. Like, I think when you and I think about grace, here's how we think about it. We think about it as God saying to the drug dealer, the prostitute, the train wreck of a human being who's lived their life in five points, who's lived their life wherever, making bad choices, living a sinful life. I think we think about grace coming into that person's life and saying, all right, let's wipe the the slate clean and we'll start over again. And I want you to see from John 3, that's not it. That's not what grace is. Grace is something much more challenging. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you've built your entire identity around something, something even good, but something other than me. You've built your entire life, and you've looked to that. You've looked to your reputation. You've looked to your good deeds. You've looked to your hard work. You've looked to your relationships. You've looked to your positions of authority and power. And you've looked to those things to give you worth and meaning and joy and life. And Nicodemus, you've grown old in your sons. You've grown old in this life you've tried to build, in this identity you've tried to build around anything other than me, even the things that look like the things that I care about. You've grown old in your pride and your self-love, and the only hope for you now is for me to make you new again and to make you like a little baby who is utterly dependent on my love and my care. That's what Jesus is saying. I always think about, there's a scene, I have lots of favorite scenes in Narnia. I'm not a Lord of the Rings guy as much. I like Lord of the Rings, but I've seen the movies, and I've tried to read the book a couple times, and I just bogged down every time at the Tom Bombadil scene at the beginning of Fellowship. But I have read Narnia several times, and the scene that I love is Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which whoever, Disney, whoever did that film just blew, and they especially blew this scene, which is my favorite scene, maybe in all of Narnia, next to Diggory with his mom. Uh, But it's the scene where, if you remember the story, they're out in the sea, and this little turd of a kid, Eustace, who is just a selfish, selfish son of a gun, he, uh, in that moment where they go by the dragon with all the riches, Nic- uh, Nicodemus, Eustace has that memory, thinks, ah, if I can just get to the gold, then I can become rich and then become powerful and then boss everyone around. And if you remember the scene, Eustace, in a strange way, falls asleep and he wakes up and he slowly realizes he's become a dragon. That the, and Lewis says that the dragonish greed in his heart took over, transformed his body, and he's become 
this massive dragon. And if you remember the scene, he's, he's desperately trying to get the attention of the other children to say, like, hey, this is me. It's Eustace. Help me. Help me. And finally, Aslan shows up. And here's how the scene goes. You have it in your handout. Aslan meets Eustace, who is a dragon at this point, And he says, you'll have to let me undress you, uh, says Aslan, the lion. And so desperate was Eustace that even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back, laying anxious on the ground. Here's what Eustace felt. He said this, the very first tear, t- the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And he, when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on And he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this is the kind of thing that I need to do in your life. I need to undragon you. I need to bring a, a birth that I can only bring from the inside out and to make you completely new. And it's a work purely of my grace. So first, our need for grace. But second, look at me just for a little bit about the mystery of grace. I think the hardest part of this conversation for Nicodemus is how clear that Jesus makes it that grace is not our own doing. That grace isn't something we can earn. That grace isn't something we can do. That grace isn't something that we deserve. In fact, the idea of grace that Jesus is really getting at here is, the, is God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. God giving us the very, very opposite of what you and I deserve. And I think if you're like me, we ask the question, why did Nicodemus need God's grace? Like he'd never looked at porn, never been drunk, never slept around. He'd always been serious about scripture. He's always been serious about prayer, about theology, about doing good things, doing good deeds, always been top of his class, right? Uh, He's always been well-respected by his peers. He's always been the teacher's pet, the teacher's favorite. In other words, put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes for a second. He kind of had earned everything that he had, right? All these titles, ruler of the Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, teacher of Israel, he had worked his butt off for those things. And surely in this place, he must have felt God owes me. And he's so confused. You can feel the confusion in Nicodemus' this conversation where he's like, Jesus, what are you saying? We're talking about me, right? You can feel that confusion where Nicodemus is saying, like, Jesus, remember, it's me, Nicodemus. We're not talking about the prostitute across the street. We're not talking about the woman that Jesus is going to talk to at the well. We're talking about me. I've had my stuff together. I've lived a good life. He's got to be confused, but I think he's more than confused. Everything he's built his life around is totally, in this moment, threatened. Everything that he'd staked his life on is coming undone. And he's got to be at least a little bit anxious. I love the way Flannery O'Connor, she captures the idea of grace so well in all of her stories, but she once wrote to a friend in her letter, she said, all human nature vigorously resists 
grace. Because grace changes us and the change is painful. Another way we can say that, we hate grace because grace puts us out of control. Because from the garden, you and I have wanted to control and manage God. We've wanted to live our lives in such a way where we do this exchange. Where God, if I just do the things that I think you want me to do, and if I just don't do the things that you don't want me to do, then you owe me. You owe me a good life, as I typically as I defined it. You owe me. You owe me what I've earned. Uh, this came home to me, or the idea of grace started to come home to me when I was a junior in high school. Some of you heard me tell the story before, I think, but I was a junior in high school. I had become a Christian two years earlier, and I really was a super serious youth group kid. Like, I was the kid who was very, very serious about reading my Bible, having my QT, my quiet time. I was very serious about being at every possible youth group meeting and event. I was a leader in the youth group and loved the way that other kids who weren't as serious as me looked at me and were like in awe, not really in awe, but I felt like they were in awe of my maturity as a junior in high school. And uh, there was this ministry that came on campus that year called First Priority. I don't know if it's still around. Um, It was kind of like FCA, but the idea was we were going to meet very, very early in the morning and show the rest of the school how serious we were about Jesus. So it's like, never mind, no one wants to show up at school at like 6 o'clock in the morning. We're going to show up to show everyone how serious we are about Jesus. So I'd been doing this thing for about a year, and they were like, hey, you should come interview to be the president. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I should. Definitely I should. I have been doing this for Jesus, you know what I mean? So I go and interview to be the president, and I'll never forget, they say to me as a 16-year-old, Sammy, this was the only question as I can remember it. I mean, I think I had to like give my conversion, which is, you know, whatever. And they said, why should you, Sammy, be the president of First Priority? And I remember this was like, this is what I've been waiting for, right? I've been waiting for adults to look at me and be like, why should you be the leader? And I remember saying, because I haven't missed a quiet time in over a year. And like, in my mind, I'm like, drop the mic moment, you know, like, let's just, let's just revel in that for a second. You know what I mean? Like a year. I'm not, I'm talking a weekend, right? Like I'm talking, I was serious. Like I'm putting the work in. This is my moment. And I like to imagine how Jesus was looking at me in that moment, you know, where he was like, man, can't wait to humble this kid. <laughs> and he did the next two years, actually the next four years of my life were the most humbling here too far. Um, but I think when I think about that time in my life, like I was all about that WWJD game. Like, I don't know if that's still a thing, but I had, like, every kind of matching WWJD bracelet. Like, I had a black one that I wore that was pretty neutral that would match with most things. Then I had a khaki one that I liked to roll out when I was wearing navy things for some reason in my Eddie Bauer gear. And I had, like, a crimson one that I would break out for special occasions. And I remember thinking, like, the way I think about that time in my life, which obviously I was growing and obviously there were good things and it's easy for me to make fun of now. But I think about the WWJD, what, what would Jesus do? What was sorely missing from my life was what is sorely missing from Nicodemus' life that he just doesn't get, that he's going to begin to get. Is that if I could, this is actually something that like, I want to do if I have any cool designer friends. I want to make WJHDFM bracelets. Wouldn't be as catchy, clearly. But what Jesus has done for me. Because I think there's a way of doing Christianity where it's all about what you're doing for Jesus. And let's just be honest, that leads to two places. That leads to despair, 
because you're not doing enough or you've really messed up or you're doing things you know you shouldn't be doing or you're not doing things you shouldn't be doing. Or if you feel like you're living that best life, at least you're, no, you're proud as anything. And like you don't see it because we're always the last one to see our self-righteousness and we're always the last one to see our pride. But believe me, your roommates see it. Your good friends probably see it and are afraid to say anything. But let's just be honest. People don't want to be around you because your head is swollen with pride because you think Jesus loves you because of what you're doing for him. And Nicodemus, this is what blows his mind, is Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I don't, I've never loved you because of what you've done for me. Let me invite you into what I'm about to do for you. Let me invite you into this God that you proclaim what he has done for you in sending me, his one and only son, into this broken world for you. Uh, this means two things. Um, here's the first. This one's going to sound weird, but I'm just going to challenge you with it. This is what's unique about Christianity. Is that you can't make yourself a Christian. You can make yourself a Buddhist. You can make yourself a Muslim. You can make yourself a Mormon. You can make yourself a lot of things. But Jesus is saying in this passage, you cannot make yourself a Christian. That it is something that takes an act of God, bringing the gospel by his spirit to home in your heart and bringing new life as you receive what God has done for you in and through his son. This is why Jesus uses that weird illustration of the wind where he says, listen, this whole thing is like the wind. Think about the wind for a second. Like we've had a lot of wind recently. The wind is always two things. The wind is incredibly powerful. Like if you had been in my backyard this weekend, you would have you know, seen the power of the wind and all of the branches all over my yard from the two hurricane scares. And the wind is also incredibly unpredictable. That you can't control. In other words, Jesus is saying you can't control this thing. The grace of God is wild and free. But you will know it when it comes into your life. Because it comes always with great power. And it always changes. It changes things. Um, I, I love the story out of... Uh, uh, I always mess this up. I always want to say... Augustine, and then I get corrected to Augustine. But Augustine's one of my favorite old saints. And their, his story is fascinating. If you know the story, of, if you ever read Confessions or know his story at all, he was like a huge, basically a sex addict. And he, all in Confessions, he talks about how much he struggled with lust. He talks about how much he struggled with women. And then he's reading scripture by a tree one day, and he has this moment. The Spirit does what he does, and, and you know, Augustine is made new. He's never the same again. And I love this story. There's a story out of his life where he's in Rome one day after this has happened, after he's become a Christian, after he belongs to Jesus and the wind of grace has blown in his life and he's on the streets in Rome and one of his old lovers comes up to him and she says, she meets him in the street and she says, Augustine, it, Augustine, it is I. And in this beautiful way, he says, yes, but it is not I. It is not me. And I love this because this is what the winds of grace do is it makes you new. It changes everything in your life, but you can't control it. You can't make yourself a Christian. And the second thing that this means for us is that the truest litmus test to know whether you're a Christian is to believe that the fact that you're a Christian is an absolute miracle. That if God could bring his grace and totally change your life, whose life can he not change? That you're not a Christian by birthright, that you're not a Christian because you grew up in it, that you're not a Christian because you made some commitment or decision 
that if you're a Christian, it is a miracle, a literally a miracle that God did this work of grace in your life. And this is where Jesus does that weird reference. I don't know if you caught it at the end. He makes this reference to the strange story of God's people in the desert in Numbers 21. I'm just going to read it for context. Here's the passage. God's people are in the desert. They're making their way to the promised land. Here's what Numbers 21 says. It's a short passage. He says, But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people. And many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here here are God's people. They're being led out of slavery. They're being taken into the promised land. But they were so full of pride and self-love that all they could do was be bitter and complain. And so God literally lets them feel the bite of their own self-love in the form of snakes. And they cry out. And then God provides this means to save them from death and give them new life in this bronze serpent that literally Moses lifts up. And all the people have to do, all that they have to, after, after they've been bitten by these snakes, all they have to do, all God asks them to do, is to look, to look up at this bronze serpent on a pole. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, how many times have you taught that passage? How many times have you read that passage? How many times have you told that passage to your kids and do you not know that I'm that serpent? That I'm the one who's going to be lifted up on the cross to take away the death and destruction of sin that anyone who looks by faith to me will be given new life and made new. And I think this is the good news and the bad news of grace, right? Think about all the times for you, all the times that you've avoided five points, all the times that you've avoided porn, all the quiet times that you've had, all the mission trips you've been on. We could go on and on. The lists are not limited to that. All the Christian books you've read, they cannot and they will not give you life with God. They cannot and they will not make you right with God. But God, through his Son, has done everything to make you right with himself. He has done it all, which is why Jesus owned that cross. He was lifted up and said, it is finished. And what he meant was your work and my work of proving ourselves, of earning it is over, that God's grace comes to you free and rich and it changes everything and that God is delighted to give it to you. I think there are, if you're like me, there are a lot of Nicodemuses in the room tonight. This isn't something that you just get over when you become a Christian. Like when I had that first priority moment, I was a Christian. But I still didn't understand grace. I still didn't understand that it was far, far, far more about what Jesus had done for me than about what, what I was doing for Jesus. I'll close with this. There's an interview that I love out of, if you're a YouTube fan at all or a music fan at all, it's an interview with Bono in Rolling Stone. And the, interview, the interviewer is asking him questions, and here's how it goes. He's, the interviewer asks, he says, As I told you, I think I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? 
Bono says, yes, I think that is normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. And the interviewer says, I haven't heard you talk about that. And Bono goes on, he says, I really believe that we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe, the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you reap, as you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer says, I'd be interested to hear that. And Bono says, that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins into the cross because I know who I am. And this is what's so fascinating is the next place we, in John's gospel, that we see Nicodemus is John 19. Years ago, Jesus has gone to the cross and Nicodemus with his friend Joseph, they go and they ask for his body to give it a proper burial. And I think this is the question that comes to us is are you holding out that Jesus took your sins to the cross? Because you know who you are. I love thinking about when when Nicodemus goes, because apparently this happens for Nicodemus. He moves from this place of trying to earn it to receiving the grace of God in his life. And it's fascinating because it means when Nicodemus went to take Jesus' body, it was literally the Passover feast, which meant the very act of touching Jesus' dead body as a religious Jew would have defiled him and made him unable to partake in the feast. And why does Nicodemus do it? Because Nicodemus knew that Jesus was the true Passover. He was the true Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Nicodemus had been changed by the grace of Jesus in this conversation. And the question for you and me is, have you? Have you been changed by the grace of God in your life? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would change us by your grace, that you would make us new, that you would do what you alone can do in our lives. And we ask that you would do it not because we're worthy, not because we've earned it, but because you love us and gave yourself for us out of your great loving kindness and grace to us. And I pray for those of us who know that, would you remind us of it? Would you bring it home fresh to our hearts? Would you help us to keep in step and to live and rest and trust in that grace you've shown to us and show it to one another. And for my friends here who've never heard of grace before, Lord, I pray that you would transform their lives and hearts by your gospel, and that you would bring it home, wrestle with them in the places they need to wrestle, meet them as you alone can do. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing with me. We're going to close out with a doxology.